I don't know about you, but already this morning, I feel that God has his hand on us as we worship him. I was greatly ministered to by the music already this morning, and I'm confident that the Holy Spirit will use me as we take a look at our scripture this morning. Would you please turn your Bibles to the New Testament book of Ephesians chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 1 today as we begin a new chapter in our work. I think times are changing a little. Do you think do you think that we live in a culture that's concerned about but we struggle to live in a PC world, in a politically correct world. There's a lot of struggle today, I think. It seems like you can't even say things that everyone knows is absolutely true. It reminds me of this children's story um, called The Emperor's New Clothes. The emperor has a special tailor that is going to design some special outfits for him. And the tailor talks the emperor into thinking that he's wearing the finest clothes in all the land. But it's really no clothes at all. And no one really wants to tell the emperor, because he's the emperor, no one wants to tell him that he's not wearing anything at all, actually. Until a little kid shows up and takes a look at him and says, that man is buck naked. <laughs> and everyone else then, after the truth is told, everyone else looks at each other and says, yeah, I, I think so too. Now in some ways, our PC words make us a little bit more kinder and gentler, I think, which I think we need more of uh, today. Today, though, we're going to take a look at perhaps one of the most politically incorrect scriptures in all the Bible. Our sermon series on the book of Ephesians is entitled One, and the author of the letter, the Apostle Paul, writes to a church in Ephesus, a city, and the Apostle Paul starts out this letter by laying out the doctrines of the Christian faith. Now, a doctrine is a theological word that means the values and the concepts and the principles that are taught in Scripture. And after he lays out this biblical foundation, the doctrines, the biblical foundations of truth, and he does that in, as we read Ephesians in chapters 1, 2, and 3. After he does that, then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he lays out how to live out that theological truth in those doctrines. Let's take a look at our text today, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. These are my Father's words. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is, at now, who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. 
But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is God's word for us today. I think in our culture, as we think about our culture, there's some common cultural beliefs that pervade our thinking and our speech, things that we say, things that are kind of in our hearts. And we're sort of all programmed to believe this as we live out in this world. If we were on some sort of commune and some sort of ranch far away, perhaps we wouldn't have these common cultural beliefs pervade our thinking and in our minds. But here's three of them that we'll talk about right now. The first is the common cultural belief is at our core, we're all basically good. You know, when a child is born and you go to the hospital and you look through that window or you look at this little baby in that plastic bassinet sleeping, wrapped up, swaddled like a burrito in there. You look at that child sleeping, and in your mind, or maybe you'll even say it with your voice, you'll say, how peaceful, right? You think how innocent, how pure this child is. No one looks at this baby, holds this baby, or looks at this baby in the hospital at sleeping and say, wow, what a sinful, rebellious child. No one does that. But you know what happens is as we parent, we, we start to believe that every child has this blank slate. And as we parent, we try to control their environment. We try to control their development. We want to put them in the best schools where they can get the best education. We want to, we want to make sure that they have the best friends around them. We want to make sure that they're eating the best foods, organic, non-GMO, you know, those sorts of pure foods. And we think that if they had this, the, just the best as they're growing up, they'll turn out to be close to perfect humans. And when they don't, we make excuses. Like, oh, it's uh, a defective gene. It's... Uh, their environment just really wasn't right. The schools, you know, those, those schools, um, the pesticides or uh, the GMOs, you know, those, those things. That, but it's never our fault, it seems. Now, why? It's because we want to believe, we want to, at our core, we want to believe that we're all basically good. And it's due to the outside influences that mess us up. Now, you might have a little bit of this in you. You might have, you feel like you have none. 
but I would challenge you on all of that. The, the second common cultural belief is this. The way to heaven is found in sincerity and morality. Now, another way to say this is all roads eventually lead to the same place as long as we're sincere in our journey and living out our life as well as we can. I've done my fair share of funerals and memorial services, celebrations of life. And one observation that I've made over many, many of these services I've, I've officiated is that every single one I officiate, every single one that I've gone to, someone in that crowd, those guests, it doesn't matter how large or small, someone will say the words, well, at least they're in a better place. I just uh, officiated one a few days ago, a very large celebration of life and memorial service here in the city. And uh, this person who, who died had three rounds of cancer. And uh, they were suffering. Um, at the very end, they were suffering. And I've heard more than once at this service, someone coming up to me and saying, well, at least the pain is over. Now, why do we say these things? I think it's because we all want to believe that the road to heaven is traveled by those who are good and sincere. The third common cultural belief that is in us that we, that we hear out there that's sort of in the air, it seems, and so it begins to be part of us is that this one, that God grades on a curve and I'm above average. You, you think, people think that God is kind and he grades on a curve, and I'm at least a B plus, and I'm on the better side of that curve. You know, in Australia and in New Zealand, they did a study of over 800,000 people, 800,000 people, and they asked one question. And the question was, are you above, well listen, are, this one question, are you above or below average in your ability to get along with others? Guess how many out of 800,000 said that they were below average when it came to getting along with others? Five? Zero? Whoever said zero was absolutely right. It's astounding to me that there was not even one person in that 800,000 that says, I hate people. You know, I, 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 I hate human beings. It, it's astounding to me. Statistically, just statistically, about 400,000 are below average. But we deceive ourselves. These are just common cultural beliefs that, that happens. Now, I think this describes how our culture thinks about life and spirituality. And truth be told, we are influenced even a little tiny bit by that culture. So what does that say? What, what, is, what does God say about life and spirituality in our culture? Well, I think, of course, we're going to turn to the scriptures on this. The theme of our text today is not hard to discern. It, it, the theme of our text is the God of grace and the grace of God today. 
So let's take a look at this. We'll call this lessons on the grace of God, and certainly these are not all the lessons to learn. But I think, and I have learned a lot this week, I think we all need to learn about the grace of God. We, we need to know more about the grace of God. So how do you define grace, anyways? How, how do we define grace? In, it, it means at least this. It means at least gift. At least. Grace at least means gift. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works. Now, a gift is something that you haven't worked for. Uh, it's something that you were not paid for or, or earned or achieved. It's a free gift. Now consider, now think with me, the type of, the kinds of gifts that you haven't paid for, but they, but they really don't change your life. We went to a conference this week, a, a ministry training conference in San Diego area. And when we go to conferences, one of the fun things that the Nova staff likes to do is we like to get as much swag as possible. Now, swag, S-W-A-G, is what? It's stuff we all get, right? But uh, when you go to these conferences and you've been to them, um, if you've gone to a training thing uh, for your work, they have these exhibit booths, right? These people who are trying to sell their wares and services, and they give you things. And so... We try to get as much as we can, and that's sort of the game that, that, that we play over there. There's tons of pens. I mean, here's one from HIU, which I, oh, Hope International University. Sorry for those who, who went there. Um, pixie sticks um, or in abundance. Uh, here's one. Fidget spinners, really great. Um, from Converge, one of, one of our denominational partners. Um, a lot of these, these are uh, um, flash drives. This is one from the Southern Baptists, uh, from their church planting network. Um, T-shirt is always one of the better swag pieces to get. This is, uh, I'm a gospel project. I had to give them my email address and phone number for, for that, uh, for that <laughs> T-shirt. Um, we have everlasting gobstoppers, granola bars, first aid kits. Uh, Keychains, now or laters, um, all this stuff. Name tag, we get a little name tag that says Dean on it. But you know, it's stuff we all get, and it's, it's really, really good, but it really doesn't really make that much difference. Dylan, you want my swag? Yeah, here you go. <laughs> now, Dylan, it's not costly. Okay, and it's not indispensable for sure. Um, it might change your life. I'm not. I'm not sure about, about that. But uh, it's just stuff we all get. It's just, it's a gift, but it's it's really not that much. But if you were a poor person, let's say, and you lived in a third world country, if you were poor and you lived in a third world country and you you got a medical condition that needed specialized treatment to cure you of the disease. And either the medical treatment was inaccessible because you're in a third world country or it's too expensive and you don't have the money for it. 
But if you had a friend who knew you had this medical condition and knew that there was a cure for that condition, and they said, I'm going to sell all my possessions and get the proceeds to all my possessions, and I'm going to pay for your surgery, I'm going to pay for your rehab, your rehabilitation, I'm going to pay for your hospital stay so that you can be cured of your condition. Now that's a free gift. It's just like the swag. It's free, but it's different. It's a generous gift, of course, but that gift is indispensable, and it's costly. And most of all, it's life-changing. Now why? It's how indispensable and costly the gift is that makes that life-changing. Lessons on the grace of God. Number one, grace is an indispensable gift. Grace is an indispensable gift. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. See, there's a difference between being sick and being dead. I think you know that. And if you're sick and you need healing, there are degrees of sickness, right? I mean, I, mean, I have a little scratchy throat today, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm, I'm going to get sick maybe. And so I took some supplements last night, rubbed some oils all over me, you know, and I went to sleep, and I wanted to get a good night's sleep. But there are degrees of sickness, and there's a big difference between being sick and being dead. If you're sick and you need healing, you can contribute to your healing, right? I, one of, maybe one of the first contributions if you're sick is admit that you're sick. That's one of my problems. I don't admit that I'm sick. I, I think many of you have that. I'm not really sick, and you're sneezing, and your nose is running, and you're hot all over, cold and hot, and all of that. You admit you're sick. You contribute to your healing. So then you go to the doctor, right? And the doctor will give you uh, medicine or some therapy or, or something like that. Maybe you get some good rest, and you drink a lot of fluids. You take your medicine. You've got to contribute to your healing, but you can have your medicine, but if you don't take your medicine, it's not going to do anything just to have your medicine, right? So you contribute to your healing. You go see the doctor, you get some rest, you eat healthy, you uh, drink water, you maybe do some homeopathic remedies, vitamins, herbs, whatever you, you take, but if you're dead, and whether you're uh, peacefully dead or you're traumatic dead. Some of you first responders that you know, we know traumatic death. And I think we also have seen peaceful looking dead people too, right? And if you're dead, you're dead. And if you're dead, what you need is a resurrection. You don't need healing. You need a resurrection. There are no degrees of deadness like there is with sickness, right? And when you're dead, you cannot contribute to your resurrection. The Bible does not say you were sick in your sins. Because if you were just sick in your sins, then maybe you can contribute to your healing in some way. The sick say... If you're just sick in your sins, you kind of say, you know, 
I, I want to get to know God. I, I need some religion in my life. I'm a pretty good person. I'm not a drug addict or a criminal or anything. I, but I don't need a born-again experience. I just want a little Jesus in my life. That's what the sick in their sins say. If you're just sort of sick in your sins, not dead in your sins, then there are degrees of sickness. And then you can contribute to your healing. Then God's help is not indispensable. And if that's you, if you're just sort of sick in your sins and you want a little bit of Jesus, good luck. But if you're dead in your sins and you cannot contribute at all to your resurrection, then the grace of God is absolutely indispensable for you. And it's radically humbling. Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And a Christian is someone who recognizes not that you are in spiritual financial trouble and all you need is a new investor or you could use a loan or a handout. That's not the Christian. A Christian is, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I have zero dollars. I, I need, I have no spiritual capital. I have no spiritual cash. And unless God comes to radically rescue me, I will drown. The practical side of this is, is when you understand that you're poor in spirit, that you're spiritually bankrupt, you are unable to look at another person in the eyes with any superiority. Never. And if you ever look at another person with spiritual superiority, you don't know or you have forgotten about the grace of God in your own life. And when you see the indispensability of the grace of God, your response has got to be humility. The first lesson on the grace of God is grace is an indispensable gift. The second is this, it's a costly gift. Grace is a costly gift. Verses four through seven. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. See, because of God's great love, in mercy and grace, there's, there's three things, and let me give you a, sort of a synopsis of this verse here. And the first is this, it's that he made us alive with Christ. And the second, you can just pull it straight from the verses, he raised us up with Christ. And the third is, he seated us in the heavenly realms. Now, what's interesting here, I, I find it very interesting, the, the Greek verbs made and raised and seated in the original Greek language, each of these verbs has the prefix S-Y-N, sin. Like, it, it, it means together with, S-Y-N. So when the words synthesis, putting together ideas to form a theory or an, or an, or an idea, it's you're synthesizing something. Or, like I said, synopsis. It's putting together an outline or a general summary of things. It's together. So... When you look at this, you could read it, 
God made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up together with Christ. And he seated us together in, with Christ in the heavenly realms. Now, this is sort of redundant. That, that's why it's not translated that way. But this is telling us something. What is this telling us? It's telling us that the moment you believe, you become united with Christ. And we are so united with him that these past tenses of these words, they really matter. We are seated together with Christ. And you think, what? No, I'm seated here in Torrance, California at Nova Community Church's worship center. It's not a literal seating, being seated with Christ, but it's, it's, it's legally seated with Christ in heaven. This means that we are as loved and as accepted and as delighted in God's eyes. He sees us like this as Jesus himself is seated in the heavenly realms right next to God. That's how God sees us already. And because we are raised up with Christ, it means that we are so united with him, we will be physically raised with him because we are united with him. And when you cross that line of faith, when you say, I believe that Jesus died on the cross, when you, when you say, I trust him with my salvation, I see that I'm not just sick with sins, but I'm dead in my sins. When you believe that and you trust Jesus with that, it, it, it makes a difference. It means that everything that he's done and everything that he deserved becomes yours. You are as honored and loved and accepted as his actions deserve. And the implication of this is this, that we are so united with Christ that we get everything his life deserves. And if he is so united with us, then he got everything our life deserved. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Praise God. You know, I, I think about this. On the cross, did Jesus cry out, oh, my hands, my hands, when the, the spikes pierced his hands? Or did he cry out, my feet, ah, my feet? No. Did he cry out my head when that crown of thorns got pushed and the thorns pierced his skull? He didn't cry out my head, my hands, my, my feet. What did he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus lost his father. Somehow Jesus experienced a physical death that sin deserves, but he experienced that he experienced that eternal separation from God that sin deserves too. And it all came down on Jesus. It's quite a price. And he paid it. Lessons on grace. First is that grace is an indispensable gift. Second, grace is a costly gift. And the third, this is our application for today. When you receive God's grace, you give up the right to boast. You give up the right to boast. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, 
so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Thomas Brooks is an author. He's a writer. and He, he wrote uh, novels uh, centuries ago, but he came up with something that I think is very interesting today. Um, he said this. He said, all human beings get their self-worth by despising or boasting over other classes of human beings. It's basically, he said, this is how we get our self-esteem. And then in, in this novel he wrote, he gave examples of three classes, the rich and the middle and the poor. And he said this about the poor. He said, the poor despise the rich in the middle because of the poor person's suffering. And they, they'll say things like, the system has abused me. And the, and the rich in the middle class got to where they're at um, because of luck. And then Thomas Brooks goes on to say, for the middle class, he says, the middle class looked down on the poor. And they think the only reason they got to where they're at in the middle is because they were smarter than them. And the rich, well, the rich looked down on the middle and the poor, and they think that everyone else below them is definitely not smarter than them. And the thesis of all of this is this. The way everyone gets their self-worth or self-image or self-esteem is that they boast by looking down on other people. But when the gospel of grace hits you, the knowledge of how lost you were and how costly the payments were, it's traumatic to you because you lose the right to boast. So where do you get your self-image and your self-worth from? You look up and you see how much God loves you. There's a, there's a great example in the novel by Victor Hugo, Les Miserables, and you've maybe seen the movies or the, or the play Les Miserables. It's a beautiful. It's, it's a story of Jean Valjean. And if you don't know the story, Valjean is put into prison as a young man, very unjustly put into prison, and he's sentenced very unjustly to hard labor for 20 years. And because of his unjust suffering, he begins to feel arrogant and superior to everyone around. When he gets out of prison, finally, he becomes a real criminal. And he's thinking, because the system has abused me, I'm going to abuse everyone else. And as the story goes, he finds a refuge for the night in the home of a bishop who is very kind and hospitable to Valjean. And when the bishop goes to bed, Valjean doesn't really go to bed. He gets up and he steals all of the silverware in the home, puts it in a bag, puts it over his shoulder, and takes off running. Well, the police see a man running, and so they grab him and bring him back to the bishop's house. And the, and the police say to the bishop, we found this man with your silverware. And the bishop, to Valjean's amazement, the bishop tells the police, oh, I gave him the silverware. And Jean Valjean, you forgot the silver candlesticks too, and he gives those to him. And so the police are dumbfounded, and they leave the bishop's home. And the bishop says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. 
It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from your black thoughts in the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. And then this beautiful artistry just sort of plays out. The struggle is depicted in the novel, really in the novel, that Jean Valjean has had over this traumatic struggle of grace. Yes, he had a traumatic struggle of grace that's been given to him. And if you read in the novel, you don't really see it in the play or, or the movie, but in the novel in the next chapter, Victor, Victor Hugo writes these words about Valjean. He writes, There came over him a strange emotion opposed to the hardness that he acquired over the 20 years in prison. And he perceived with dismay that the frightful calm which the injustice of his misfortune had conferred upon him was giving way. He was conscious that this pardon, this celestial kindness, was the greatest assault and most formidable attack he had ever addressed. What Hugo is writing about here is the self-righteousness that Valjean had in him. You see, we all boast. We all boast. We boast about things like, I'm a pretty good person. We say things like, I'm a good father, or I'm a good mother, I'm a good friend. And these people aren't. I'm, I'm on this side of politics, and those guys over there, ah. These guys on this side of those, ah. And, and there's this self-righteousness, this boasting that just pervades everything. And that's where we get our self-worth and our self-image at times. And Valjean's unjust suffering gave him this frightful calm that he committed crimes. But when you receive the grace of God, his grace is this formidable challenge to your boasting. Jeremiah chapter 9, it says, Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. There's only one man, because of who he is, could have boasted. This one man could have said, look at my life. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've achieved. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes, Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. One person who could have boasted, he didn't boast. Our, our last verse in our text today, verse 10, it says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This word handiwork, maybe it's translated workmanship in your Bible, is the word poema. It's the Greek word poema, and we get our word poem or poetry from it. It's literally, it's translated something made, and it's something made by God. It's a work of art. It's, it's a poem. It's a unique work of art. And God is creating you through the experiences that you've had in your life, 
through your education, through your sufferings, through the gifts that he's given you, the talents that he's given you, he's, he's making you into this masterpiece, this work of art, this poema, through your ethnicity, your race, or your culture. And he's making you this masterpiece of art for a purpose, for his glory and his pleasure. Your self-image doesn't come from looking down on someone. It doesn't come from looking around. It doesn't come from your abilities or your excellence or your performance. And when you know, when you know the costliness and the indispensability of the grace of God, then you, ha- you know you have no right to boast. And you know that God has created you for purpose, to bring him glory and honor with your life. Amen.